Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. Thanks to the worship team for leading us before the throne uh, as we worship together uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm a member of the teaching team here at First Baptist, and I'm continuing on in our series. And I was, uh, I'm, I'm preaching on justice this morning, uh, and I'm very grateful that uh, Russ basically covered it all uh, in what he shared already. And so if you want to know practically what justice looks like day in and day out, just recall what Russ had to share with us this morning, because that is just better practical advice than I ever could have possibly come up with to share with you this morning. So Russ, thank you for, uh, for sharing, uh, and I hope all of us can be challenged uh, and convicted a little bit by what he had to say. So over the course of the last several weeks, we're into week five now in our Amos series. We've been delving deeper into this Old Testament book, trying to learn from this ancient prophet. We've heard and we've sought to understand better how we can listen to the words of this prophet and apply them to our lives today. We've positioned the book historically, uh, and Pastor Dean has helped us to do this to understand that the nation of Israel has been divided into north and south. Uh, We know that Amos was speaking specifically in a lot of what he had to say to this northern kingdom of Israel, although as you read through the book, you'll find a few passing references to things that uh, the southern kingdom should probably listen up uh, and pay attention so that maybe they could learn uh, from what's going on uh, in the north. Now, before we continue with the book of Amos this morning, I'm going to take us back in time a little bit, uh, a little bit further than we've gone up to this point, uh, because I want us to have a proper understanding of how this nation got to a place where a prophet would be issuing such dire warnings. If we've paid attention over the last several weeks, we know that things are not good. Uh, In fact, they are quite the opposite. Things are really bad uh, in Israel, as we're reading uh, from Amos. And what Amos is saying is, is not particularly cheery uh, or happy. He's, he's issuing some pretty severe warnings uh, to the warnings uh, to this nation. Uh, they really need to pay attention. But I think in order for us to appreciate the gravity of what's being said, we should go back in time a little bit. So when we get to Amos this morning, which I promise won't be too long, um, When we get to Amos, we're going to meet a king uh, who's referred to as Jeroboam in the text. And I just want to quickly lay out, because this might get confusing, uh, that's Jeroboam II, uh, is who we're going to meet in Amos' text. But before we get to Jeroboam II, I'm actually going to take us back to the first Jeroboam. Uh, And so if you want to follow along, this is several generations before the prophet Amos would have been speaking. This is several generations before things would have gotten to the place where Amos needed to speak. We meet Jeroboam I. And we don't read a lot about him. He gets about three chapters of airtime in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, And it starts in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 to 31. We're going to start there this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Kings. And then I promise we will get to Amos uh, and and get through chapter 7 this morning as well. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 to 31, it says that at about that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem. And Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. 
Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. So what on earth is going on in these verses and how are they relevant to our conversation today? That's the first question I would hope maybe flagged for for many of you. And uh, we're going to start with what's going on. uh, And I hope that I will be able to, by the end of it, show you why it's relevant as well. Uh, So what's going on? At the time that this scene takes place, uh, when uh, the prophet meets or the, the priest meets Jeroboam, the nation of Israel was one kingdom comprised of 12 tribes. There wasn't a north and south yet, uh, but we get that referenced here. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was the king, and he was known for being kind of tough uh, and brutal on the people. See, his dad Solomon had imposed a series of labor requirements and expectations on residents of some of the northern tribes of this nation of Israel. And these, these labor requirements and these expectations were in many ways exploitative. Uh, they, they were hard. Uh, they were uh, forceful. Uh, they were unreasonable. Uh, and they caused a great deal of hurt uh, and pain to the people. And that was kind of what had become normative under Solomon's reign in the latter part of his, his kingship. And the people weren't super appreciative of that. I mean, I don't think many people like to have a boss that just drives them day in and day out and never recognizes the work that they're doing, and that's what was going on. And so the people knew that Solomon was leaving and that Rehoboam would be assuming the throne, and they had hoped that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, Rehoboam would loosen some of these labor requirements. Maybe he'd ease up a little bit and make it easier. Um, That's not what happened. In fact, Rehoboam saw this as an opportunity to be more forceful, to assert that he was more fearsome than his father was, that he was tougher, that he was more capable, and that he would beat these people into submission if that's what it took, because he was going to be a powerful and strong king. That's what's going on when we meet Jeroboam on the scene. So the verses that we just read, we encounter what I would characterize as perhaps a divinely sanctioned subversion, if you will. It's essentially God saying, listen, something's going to happen, Jeroboam, and I'm going to ask you, after this happens, you are going to lead the northern kingdom. You are going to lead and serve as king over ten tribes of Israel, because what is going on right now is not okay. It can't be sustained, and we need to hold the current king accountable for the way that he's treating the people. So the prophet has told Jeroboam that the nation will be torn to pieces, much like the new cloak he was wearing, And Jeroboam will be made king over ten tribes in Israel. So there's some hope and some promise here. Perhaps maybe now when Jeroboam becomes king, things will be different. Maybe now people will be treated properly. Maybe now people will look to the Lord for guidance and direction, the way that the kings were told that they should. So what happens? Fortunately, you don't have to read a lot longer, because like I said, Jeroboam doesn't get a whole lot of airtime. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to 30, We learn what happened just after Jeroboam became the king. It says, After seeking advice, Jeroboam made two calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. It didn't take long before Jeroboam set up altars to false gods for the people of Israel. 
It didn't take long for him to completely desert the way that God would have had him go as the king. This choice would set them on a course, this nation of Israel. It would set them on a certain direction and a certain path that would ultimately lead to where we find ourselves now in the book of Amos. The dire state in which we find the northern kingdom of Israel wasn't the kind of thing that took place overnight. This constant uh, exploitation of the poor, this constant ignorance of the orphan and widow, this indifference and complacency that had grown so prominent, it didn't happen quickly. It didn't happen overnight. What happened was that over time, integrity, decency, respect for human beings, these were all things that were corroded by a series of decisions made by more than one leader. But it starts all the way back in 1 Kings when Jeroboam is given an opportunity to lead a nation in the way that God would have them go, and he decides, no. Let's worship these calves. Let's set up altars to these false gods, and let's see what they provide for us. And over the course of the next several generations, more and more decisions are made on that path, leading us to where we find ourselves in the book of Amos. Um, when I was in high school, uh, I had to read a lot of books for school, but I actually only really ever read one of them. Uh, and it was the shortest one I was ever assigned. Uh, that book was Animal Farm by George Orwell. It was like less than 100 pages. It was great. It's the only book I read in high school. Um, I, uh, and I remember it, and I remember being really captivated by the story because it was animals, and it was allegorical, and it was fun, and it was short. I was able to like, put it off for a really long time and then still get the book read by the deadline. At the beginning of the story, there's these animals on a farm, and they're led by the pigs to overthrow the oppressive farmer. Sounds a little bit like what's gone on with Jeroboam as he's led the people to overthrow the oppressive king. They implement a series of commands as this new kind of regime. The most important command that they plastered uh, up for everybody to see on the farm was all animals are equal. And that was what they were to live by. With time, however, the pigs assume the power on the farm, and as time continues on, the animals find it increasingly difficult to tell the difference between the pigs and the humans that they had overthrown at the start. The pigs start doing funny things like walking on two legs uh, and, and partaking of uh, human indulgences, and all of a sudden they can't tell the difference anymore. And as the book draws to a close, not too many pages later, I might add, um, an amendment is proposed to the original commandment for the animals. And so then you look up and you see on the sign where it said, all animals are equal, it has been crossed out, and it reads, all animals are equal but some are more equal than others. And that's where they ended up, because over a, over a period of time, a series of decisions were made that led them to live by a different set of standards than what they had set out to follow in the beginning. So at this point, we've laid some historical groundwork. We've learned about this first king, Jeroboam, Jeroboam I. We see that the people of Israel overthrew an oppressive regime, but their new kings did not always make wise decisions. The verses that we read at the start about Jeroboam the first, they predate Amos, but they help us to understand the context of his writing. They help us understand how the people got to where they were. Last week, Pastor Dean led us through two chapters that highlighted the complacency of the people of Israel, the utter disregard and the seeming indifference that they had to the plight of the poor in their midst their lack of concern about their tendency to worship false gods or to sacrifice as a ritual rather than as something deeply meaningful for them. Amos told the people that because of this, God had come to despise their religious festivals. 
The Lord longed for a day that justice would roll. That the, what the people of Israel didn't realize as they heard these words, though, is that the rolling of justice might not be good news for them. And this brings us to Amos 7, where we're going to park ourselves and spend our time this morning. There are two distinct sections in Amos chapter 7, which is convenient uh, and makes it easier to break a sermon into, into sizable chunks. Uh, so there's two distinct sections in the chapter, and each of them will help us gain just a little bit of insight into the life of the prophet while also challenging us, I hope, in the way that we live our lives today. So if you want to follow along in Amos chapter 7, uh, I'm first going to read verses 1 to 9. And uh, here's what it says. We read, This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. I lost my spot. (laughs) This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. And then this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. We're going to pause there. What's abundantly clear in these first verses of Amos chapter 7 is that the prophet has a heart for the people that he ministers to. I think sometimes we get this idea in our minds when we read about the prophets that they were these people who kind of came on the scene, said a bunch of really bad negative stuff that made people feel uncomfortable, and then just quietly exited stage left, uh, and and we carry on. Uh, To some extent, they did exit, or in some cases were exited, um, but they weren't cold, unfeeling messengers. They were people who had a genuine heart for those to whom they spoke. In the verses we just read, Amos intercedes twice on behalf of the people, pleading with God to spare them. I think that to some extent, what I love about this interaction between God and Amos is that Amos is doing something pretty cool. What I think he's doing here is he's calling on God's own heart for justice in the way that the people would be treated. He's saying, God, make sure that as you discipline these people, that the way you act is just and fair. Uh, And he calls on God to be merciful but he calls on God more than anything else to be just in the way that the people will be treated. And I think that's why Amos doesn't intercede the third time. The first two times, it looks like the punishment is really severe. There's absolutely no chance for the nation of Israel in those first two. And Amos intercedes and says, God, how how could they survive? They're 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 so small. But then we get to this third one, and Amos doesn't intercede because I think Amos sees God's position as a just and fair one. To understand how that might be the case, we need to know what is meant by the plumb line in verses 7 to 9. A plumb line was a tool used in the ancient world to establish the uprightness of a wall. Today, we would use a level uh, or some similar implement to accomplish the same purpose. A plumb line was created by tying a heavy piece of lead to the end of a rope or string. It would then be dropped from the top of the wall 
Uh, and it would, of course, the heavy lead on the bottom would pull the rope tight and expose just how straight or not the wall was. So why didn't Amos intercede after this third interaction? I think because when God talks about a plumb line, God is saying that the people will be judged on the basis of their uprightness. And what is this plumb line that God is going to use to measure the uprightness of the nation of Israel? I think it's justice. Based on everything we've read up to this point uh, in the chapter, I think that God is concerned with justice. So if the people are just, it will show as straight and plumb. But if they're not, it won't. When God says to Amos that the people will be judged according to their commitment to justice, there's no longer any need or any reason to intercede because the way that the people will be treated is fair and just. I'll come back to this at the end when we evaluate how we should apply this in our own lives. But for now, let's continue to the second half of the text. So I'm going to read verses 10 to 17, uh, where it says, Then Amaziah, the the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. He said, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and, your, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. That's a cheery spot for us to kind of stop our interaction with the text this morning. So after we've just learned of Amos' intercessory efforts on behalf of the people of Israel, we jump to a new scene where the priest Amaziah is speaking to the king, Jeroboam II. Just so that we're abundantly clear, this is not the same Jeroboam that I talked about at the start. This is the second one who lived several generations later. But Jeroboam II ruled over the same Israel that the first Jeroboam did. And he had done nothing to change the practices of the people regarding where they worshipped, what gods they worshipped, and who they chose to follow. In fact, he had done the opposite. He had advanced those positions. He'd upheld those policies and others that had been introduced that were beneficial to him, made him comfortable, but that often came at the expense of the most vulnerable in the nation. And because the people had chosen not to follow Yahweh and the Lord's decrees, they had fallen further and further away from the standard God had set. That's why things seem so bleak. It's not because this King Jeroboam II was particularly evil or bad. It's not even that the first Jeroboam was particularly evil or bad. It's because Jeroboam II upheld the practices of previous leaders and continued to look only at the advantages of his position without giving any consideration to how those advantages might hurt others. It wasn't one bad leader. It wasn't one evil guy that brought Israel to the place that they were. It was the fact that for generations, people had grown comfortable with the way things were and had absolutely no desire to change because why should I? I feel good. I feel comfortable. Life is easy. As the people strayed from the Lord, they began to exploit the poor. 
They began to reject the orphan and the widow. They took advantage of what little those who did have could give. And Amos is calling them out for it as God's prophet. Amaziah, in the passage we most recently read, tells Jeroboam II that Amos is raising a conspiracy against him by prophesying that he will die and that the nation of Israel will be taken into exile. But there's an opportunity here, based on what we read in the first section, there's a chance here for Jeroboam II to right the ship, set them on the correct course, because they're going to be held accountable to the plumb line of justice. We know all of this because we just learned how the people will be judged. If Jeroboam II heeds the words of the prophet, if he renews the nation's commitment to justice, I have every reason to believe that he may not come to the tragic end that Amos has prophesied. Because then they would be shown to be upright in the eyes of the Lord. I think the way that Amos talks, he knows that this isn't going to happen. But I think that there's an opportunity for Jeroboam II. So how does he respond? He's been given a chance now to make things right. How does he respond? Well, he gets Amaziah to say to Amos, Get out, you seer. Jeroboam II's response can essentially be summarized like this. I don't like your message because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And get this, I'm really comfortable right now. Go back where you came from. Get as far away from me as possible so that I don't have to listen to you anymore. That's what Jeroboam II says to the prophet. So here's where it all starts to come home for us. When we're confronted with messages that challenge us to change, when we're called out for the expansion of our wealth, perhaps, or our ignorance of the poor, or our failure to understand or seek to identify with another person's experience, are we gracious in our response? Or do we sound like Jeroboam II in the way that we respond? Eventually, Amos does depart, but just because the prophet's gone away doesn't mean that what the prophet has predicted will no longer come to pass. See, that's the thing, is that Jeroboam II could kick Amos out of the country. It doesn't change the reality of what Amos has prophesied. If Jeroboam II continues to exploit people, if he continues to ignore the poor, if he continues to cast aside the orphan and widow, there's only one possible outcome for the nation. In the coming weeks, we're going to learn more about what might come of Israel in the wake of the prophet's rejection. But for now, what can we take away from today's text? I'm going to challenge you in the form of questions this morning. I want to leave you with two questions. And they're questions for reflection. And the reason I want to do this is because we're going to segue here momentarily to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table provides us with an opportunity to reflect on ourselves and our own lives and the way that we live and Are we plumb with the way that God would have us live? And I want us to challenge ourselves to see if we're following in the way that Jesus laid out for us some generations after Amos. So I'm not going to give you a step guide to how to accomplish these things. I'm not going to give you five quick and easy tips to be a just human being. I'm just going to leave you with a couple of questions. The first question is this. If I was judged on the basis of the plumb line that the Lord set for Israel, if I was evaluated on the basis of my commitment to justice and the consistency of my behavior, would it go well for me? The second question, am I able to identify and do I listen 
to the voices of the prophets of my day. We're going to start the transition here uh, to the Lord's table. And at this time, I'm going to invite Pastor Dean to come forward. I want him to bless the elements, and then I'm going to lead us through communion uh, together. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca, today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.